Open your Bibles to Romans 14. I'd like to read Romans 14, uh, verses 1 through 12, for our uh, preaching text this morning. And I'll invite you to follow along with me, please, as we do. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. For none of us lives to himself And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray again. Our God and Father, as we open your word, we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us through this holy word. Thank you that through the ages, holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Thank you that no scripture is of any private interpretation, but that you, by the work of the Spirit in particular, have illuminated these living words through so many generations now, and we are the latest one. Oh, how we pray that the Spirit would illuminate our hearts today, that we might understand this text as you have given it. Illuminate our minds that we may grasp the beauty and glory, the power and authority of this text. And as we pray so often, make our wills submissive and tender to your lordship that we may do all your holy will. O God in heaven, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon this nation that in so many ways has spurned you and rejected you. It seeks to establish its own identity, to live autonomously. For many of us, we believe that our lives are are our own, to live as we please, to do as we choose. And yet this text reminds us so specifically, shockingly even, that every single one of us will give account to the living God one day. Bring us to that place of submission, not just as a church family, not just as a community, but as a nation. 
Oh, how we pray that you would have mercy and awaken in our souls our deep need of Jesus Christ, our deep need of forgiveness for our many sins, our deep need of justification that is by faith alone. We are asking for more than political or economic rescue on this day. We are praying that you would rescue our very souls. Now, Spirit of God, we pray that you would expel from this place every work of darkness, every force that would array itself against you, and that you would bring a holy peace and hush over our souls that we may see and savor and feast on this living word. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus, the only Savior, the only Son sent from on high. Amen. In his book, Making Peace, Jim Van Iperen writes, The church is the only place in the world where the truth and love of Christ can lead to shalom. Shalom is an old Hebrew word that speaks not just of peace as an absence of hostility, but a wholeness of life. It's the thing that every one of us long for. It's the reason some of you take vacations to your happy place, because there's some vestige of shalom there, and maybe your happy place is the beach. Maybe yours is the high mountains. Maybe yours is a bustling city somewhere, and and this is difficult for me to fathom, but there are those who love to be in the middle of museums and activity and all kinds of, of, of people, and that, that's like the place. Well, whatever your place of wholeness would be, it's at best a, a shadow of what God originally designed and intended. And we know that in our souls, and that's why we work so hard to find wholeness, Shalom. But we know that at the end of the day, we don't have the power to give it to ourselves, do we? That as great as your dream vacation might be, or a dream home, or a dream job, or a dream relationship, they're all flawed. That's exactly why we need a mighty Savior, the one we've been seeing and coming to know more and more through our study of this New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome 2,000 years ago. And he's been walking us through what we describe as the gospel, the good news of what God the Father has done in God the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Paul has been telling us, particularly since chapter 5, that being justified by faith, we have a real peace with God. And the work that God the Father has done through the Son is transforming who we are at the core. And it has brought us into relationship with one another, and we call that the church. And we're a local assembly. We're not the limit of that. We're like one little manifestation of the one people of God that the Lord Jesus has been transforming and gathering through the ages. So we're not really just living a different habit of life now, as if you kind of lay the gospel over top of your existence, but rather God is transforming it and us from the inside out. Just by way of review, some of the previous truths that we found earlier in in Romans told us that when we were hostile enemies against God, he sent his son to die. And what an amazing thought that hostile enemies now really are adopted children. Condemned rebels 
are declared to be perfectly righteous, not because of their obedience or their zeal, but because of Christ's life and death as we were singing. And that's what causes us to sing hallelujah, to belt it out at the top of our lungs. We who were once indwelt by and enslaved to sin are now indwelt by the spirit of the living God. What a privilege. What an amazing transformation is underway. And that's what lies at the heart of Van Iperen's statement that the church is the only place in the world where truth and love of Christ can lead to shalom, that kind of wholeness. And when you begin to discover that kind of wholeness, suddenly, I mean, vacations have their place, but they're not the end all. When God begins to rebuild your life from the inside out, even a dream job, it's nice if you get one, but it's not the end of the world if you lose one. Because you realize I'm so much more than the sum total of all these life's experiences, both good or bad. I'm Christ's, and he is mine. Now think back with me for just a moment regarding some of the explicit instructions of Paul in the last two chapters that we've been uh, looking at. And I know Romans 12 was a while back. We took a long break for some various uh, other studies and, and sermons and whatnot. But then the last couple of weeks we came back to Romans 13. And in, and in chapter 12, I want to call your attention to one little phrase that has appeared four times in chapter 12 and 13. And then we're going to encounter it again in verse 1. So if you want to scan along with me, go back to chapter 12 and look at verse 5 where Paul says we are members one of another. That is, we actually belong to one another now. Romans 12 verse 10, we are a family who actually love one another. Romans 12 16, because of what Jesus is doing, we're not only members who belong to one another, family who love one another, but we're people who live in harmony with one another. And then chapter 13, verse 8, he reinforces the command tying in Leviticus. We looked at this over the last couple of weeks, again, reminding that we love each other. And that little phrase, one another or each other, is repeated again and again. Several years ago, for those of you who are newer to Gospel Hope, we took some time to actually survey uh, a number of the one another texts in the New Testament. And now in chapter 14, verse 1, he uses that one another phrase again and says welcome one another. It begins in chapter 14, verse 1, and this thought actually goes all the way through chapter 15, verse 7, but we're going to break it up into at least least two pieces. Now, why is this last one another so important? What does it mean to welcome one another? These are some of the things that we're going to explore this morning, but it's vital to every local assembly that we begin to understand the the command and even the truth that lies beneath the command because we're always being challenged on on a particular point. And as we just read a few moments ago, some of you are already tracking with that going, ooh, that sounds a little familiar. So look with me at verse one, and I want you to notice this first big truth that God welcomes both the weak and the strong. Verse one, Paul says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Now, let's pause. What does it mean to be weak in faith? Well, look at verse 2. It gives a little bit of an explanation. Paul goes on to write, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, before you, you know, just shove this into the realm of diet and think, Oh, great. You know, that just gave my vegetarian friend or, you know, my vegan, you know, cousin, biblical, you know, 
power and authority. Now, that, he's not talking about just a dietary consideration. These are dietary choices that are loaded with spiritual significance. And as we read through verses five and six, did you notice that Paul made a mention of some observe special days and some think they're all special because of what Jesus has done? We didn't read all the way to verse 21, but in verse 21, he mentions even a dispute over some believe it's okay to drink wine and some think they shouldn't. So you begin to piece those three things together and then you cast it into its first century context and if you do a little nosing around, you begin to find out that what is likely in Paul's heart has reference to Jews in particular who were still hanging on to parts of the Old Testament ceremonies and laws. Many of them had grown up in it. They didn't know anything different. I mean, all food should be kosher. And even to this day, some of you grew up in a context like that or most of you are familiar with it. It has to be approved and ultimately it has to be approved of God. And if we can't trace it back and understand and answer the the right questions, then we're not gonna eat it. So there's spiritual significance here. It's not whether a paleo diet is more helpful for you than you know McDonald's chicken nuggets. That's not what Paul is thinking about. No, the weak members probably reasoned, as one commentator notes for us, something like this. Well, in this pagan city of Rome, how do we know whether any meat at all is really clean according to Old Testament law? How do we know whether the animal from which it came was actually a clean one? How do we know whether it was slaughtered in the prescribed manner? How do we know whether it was not, first of all, offered to idols? Those are legitimate questions if you are a committed Jew. But Paul actually is pointing out the fact that in the context of the Christian faith, when Jesus Christ comes, lives his life, dies that uh, substitutionary death on the cross, and rises from the dead, and then God Almighty reveals this good news that you were justified by faith alone, he obliterated, well, he didn't obliterate, he fulfilled, that'd be the more specific word, he fulfilled all that Old Testament ceremonial stuff that Israel labored under for so long. So they didn't need to be continuing in some of those observances because it was fulfilled in Jesus. So as another author writes, Paul is criticizing them for lack of insight into some of the implications of their faith in Christ. These are Christians who are not able to accept for themselves the truth that their faith in Christ implies liberation from certain Old Testament Jewish ritual requirements. Now, Broadly speaking, one with a weak faith is actually a person whose conscience is governed by extra-biblical stuff. Now, I I do want to note a distinction here, and I think this is really important for us. This person's faith is weak, uh, author Leon Morris writes, in that it cannot sustain him in certain kinds of conduct. He does not understand that when the meaning of justification by faith is grasped, Questions like the use of meat and wine and special days become irrelevant. He really is free in the gospel. Some of you are already tracking like, how is this different from what was going on in Colossians or even Galatia? I mean, there are multiple examples in the New Testament of controversies that erupted within the body of Christ. And I think this is an important distinction. Paul doesn't drop the hammer on them the way he does in a place like Galatians or Colossians because they're not actually adding these things to the gospel to say, you know, you need to put your faith in Jesus and do this to be saved. And as we're gonna see in just a moment, their motive is actually pure. They wanna honor the Lord. They're not trying to add works to salvation. But they haven't matured to the point to realize 
Eat the meat, don't eat the meat. Drink the wine, don't drink the wine. Observe the day, don't observe the day. It doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. You have been justified by faith alone. But their heart's in the right place. In a sense, it's a sweet thing, but it's a weak thing. The conscience is governed by something extra. We never want to add to the gospel because then it becomes another gospel, and that's what Paul goes hard after in Galatians. Likewise, you don't want to take away something from the gospel because then it's another gospel. But that's not what's going on here. They just haven't grown to the place that the Lord wants them. Many of us grew up in very conservative cultures. There are a variety of religious backgrounds represented here. And we too have our lists of things that we remember as being approved and disapproved. And I'm gonna tell you that there are even some things that I, I have to reject by faith even to this day because it was just embedded in my soul from an early, an, an early age. Right spirit, right motives, but it wasn't actually a demonstration of mature, strong gospel thinking. You wore your Sunday best to church. And in the culture I grew up in, that meant even as a little guy, it was coat and tie. Is that wrong? Were we adding to the gospel? No. But does the gospel require that? No. Because God forbids drunkenness, we wouldn't even take a sip, the culture I was a part of. I mean, not even a sip of alcohol. Because gambling is sin, you wouldn't even have a deck of playing cards in the house. Uno is fine. <laughs> but not playing cards. Those are the devil's cards. Now, some of you laugh because you're like, seriously? But some of you out there are like, well, I get it. <laughs> and those are examples of things that the heart was in the right place, but it's actually extra biblical. And that's why even for some of us, some of those things, even, even though we know and believe, it, it just, it's not, it's not a deal. It still feels a little like a deal. All of us have weak spots in faith. All of us have weak points of conscience. And Paul is actually trying to help this congregation grow beyond that. And, and isn't it interesting that he doesn't come in uh, to the middle of the dispute and say who's right and who's wrong. Oh, it's there, it's clearly implied. He's identified who the strong ones are and who the weak ones are, but he's not actually trying to settle an argument so everybody can you know, either gloat like, we were right, I told you so, or like, oh, I guess I was wrong, that stinks. No, look at what he focuses on. Welcome him. What does it mean to welcome someone? Well, do you see that picture? You see that sweet embrace? That's what welcome means. It means you receive someone into your very presence. It would, now that's a technical definition I got out of one of my lexicons. It'd be better even just say, you, you, just, you bring them right into your heart. You bring them right into your home. Because that's what your God does. He brings you right into his home. Tie that back to that glorious truth that we're adopted children of the Most High God, privileged to actually call him Abba. That doesn't quite feel right for some of us who you know, grew up hearing like God is high and holy and he's absolutely other than what, and all that is true, isn't it? But then God comes near and almost, you can almost visualize him just stooping in great humility and love and saying, come here, you. And Paul's making an appeal to welcome one another because 
God has welcomed us. We want to say, well, who's right, Paul? Who's right when it comes to meat or vegetables, wine or no wine, special days or no ways? He, he doesn't actually hit that head on. It's, you see, it's not a matter of who's right. It's what's right. And what's right in God's house is that his children welcome one another, despite their strong differences of opinion. Now, what's forbidden? Well, look at the text again. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You don't, you don't set each other up. Quarreling over opinions has to do with contending strongly, a contentious manner. Some of you by nature love a good debate. There are a lot of us who don't understand that, and it makes us really nervous. And there is a place for strong discussion, and there's even a place where you can have strong disagreements. This is one of those. But at the end of the day, you don't you know, roll up your sleeves and put up your dukes. It's not about contention and fostering a spirit of quarreling. And then the second term that you need to think about for just a moment is over opinions. These are disputed matters. The problem is we're all persuaded that my opinion is right, and if it's right, then it's true, and if it's true, then you ought to believe it like I do. Oh, the world is, is so mired down in this very kind of quarreling over opinions. We really have lost the art of debate and discussion as a society, and it's just kind of descended into this sad and even frightening, you know, like backyard argument. Do you remember the pickup games in your backyard when you were a kid? We used to have them. We'd play whatever sport was in season. That's, the, that's what we were playing. And so many of those recreational moments ended in these ugly fights. A testimony to our immaturity, a testimony to our sinful natures, even as little kids want to be right, I feel in many ways, as, as you do, that our society at large has just descended into like one of those ugly little backyard fights. I'm right. No, you're not. There's a different atmosphere that the Lord is creating through Christ in his church. The author, Jerry Bridges, who I've shared with you before, he's been such a encouragement to me. I longed to meet him in heaven one day. I wrote him one email one time, and he very sweetly wrote back. I was stunned. And uh, whatever books you could get your hands on by Jerry Bridges, you should, and read them. Read them often. Read them through and through. But in one of his books, titled Transforming Grace, he wrote long ago, as Christians, we can't seem to accept the clear biblical teaching in Romans 14 that God allows equally godly people to have different opinions on certain matters. We universalize what we think is God's particular leading in our lives and apply it to everyone else. God's word is settled on a particular matter and it's clear here, isn't it? What's clear is that he says, don't quarrel. That's the negative statement. Positively, he says, welcome one another as God has welcomed you. Now that's the foundation lying beneath the command and his desires that we be like him. I'm going I'm to, as an aside, strongly recommend a couple of books. I actually brought my, 
my copies from home, which you're welcome to thumb through after the service, but these two books, if you want to do a little more study, first on the conscience, and again, we did a series on this a few years ago, so I think you could still dig through our website and find those messages at some point. Uh, the Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Differ. It's written by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Uh, Nacelli is actually a seminary professor. Crowley is a veteran missionary in Cambodia, and they have done some exceptional work on the conscience, how you can understand it, and then, as they say in the subtitle, train it and learn to love others who differ with you on significant matters. And then there's, a, there's actually a series of books. They're called The Four Views on Uh, It's a series, I think it's probably 16 or 20 books on different uh, topics right now. But this one in particular was helpful for me a number of years ago, The Spectrum on Evangelicalism. And there are four authors who each kind of lay out their own position within broader evangelicalism, and then the other three interact with that view. And and it's actually the kind of debate and discussion that ought to characterize the church. It's gracious, it's fair, uh, it's honorable, and yet it's very direct and pointed, and they don't hesitate to say, I think my brother is wrong, or you know, things like that. But it's not, a, it's not an aggressive, ugly, uh, quarrelsome uh, debate. And this one in particular uh, would, would be helpful for those of you who say, I'd like to understand maybe some of the broader beliefs and movements and, and even views within evangelicalism. Those will be up here after the service if you'd like to just thumb through them and uh, see. And they're both available at Amazon. Uh, I checked that out just to make sure that you know, they're not out of print or something like that. Nothing more frustrating than somebody says, you ought to read a book and you can't buy it anywhere. Um, all right, let's press on. Big point number two from this text. Jesus is Lord. Look at verse three. Now there are some simple commands that are given here. First of all, don't despise and don't pass judgment. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So that'd be the stronger one actually despising the weak one. Remember, because the weak ones are saying, sorry, the vegetable plate only for me, please. And they, the strong actually begin to despise or treat with contempt. You see, there's some kind of expression demonstrated, whether verbally or actions, that demonstrate, like, I don't like you. I think you're an idiot. I think, you know, whatever it is, but there's contempt being expressed and demonstrated. And this is the believer who, who really does understand the power of Christ's word and maybe even with reference to food. Like, he's staring at Mark seven nineteen, where Mark, in reference to one of Jesus' moments of teaching, says this is when Jesus declared all foods clean. You know, and so the strong Christian wants to be like, hey, hey, weak veggie eater, have you never read your Bible? You heard of a book called Mark? Oh, that, that's not the spirit of Christ, is it? Now, it's a legitimate question in one way, like, hey, could I just suggest you read the Gospel of Mark? But not with that spirit, and that's what Paul is going after. That's a contemptuousness that should not mark any of us. Despise actually connotates a disdainful, condescending judgment, an attitude that we can well imagine can be a manifestation of pride, of irritation, things that ought not to characterize the people of God. But he also has a word for the weak, doesn't he? Look at the text as he goes on. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now, it's a different terminology here, but it has to do with forming a critical opinion of the other person as you examine their lives, their practices, as you scrutinize what they believe and what they do. And this is the person who seemingly examines every little nuance 
who leaves no stone unturned. And in a similar situation, Paul writes to the Corinthians on similar issues and actually says in chapter 10, verse 25, don't ask questions for conscience sake. You see, you can actually dig around and rummage so much into little issues of differences like food or, or drink or special days, and, and you can work yourself into a place where anybody who does or thinks or says is sinning because that's, that's the kind of passing judgment that we're talking about. It's not a discernment of, mm, I don't think that's wise, I don't think it's best. No, passing judgment has to do with saying, I, I see the, the spiritual error here and you are in sin. The weak Paul suggests, consider themselves to be the righteous remnant who alone uphold true standards of piety and righteousness. And now they're actually standing over their brothers and sisters in Christ who eat the meat, drink the wine, just say all the days are special. And, and now they're standing over them and saying, your life is not worthy of God and they pass a judgment. You're less spiritual, you don't really have a heart for God, might even say you're not even a believer. It is ugly, isn't it? And Paul's saying, no, what what Jesus has done and is doing must result in a whole new atmosphere. And part of the atmosphere is that we welcome one another and make room for differences of opinion. Now, what's the perspective corrective? Has a little rhythm, a little jingle about that almost, doesn't it? Well, it's very simply, we are the Lord's. Look at verse four. Paul asks a really sobering question. Who are you? Let's just pause right there. Who are you? Well, the two terms that he goes on to use here, servant and master, it's clear what we are. We're all servants. It's a term that was used with reference to household servants. And the term master, in the English, it appears in its, it's, the, it's actually one Greek term, but we translate it two different ways in English because of the context. In the first sentence, he said, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord. There's a second usage. It's the same Greek term. Kurios, for those of you who are curious. Master, Lord. Who are you? We'd like to think we're Lord, that we're in charge, do you ever work with someone who thought they were in charge but they really weren't? And they like never got the memo? And eventually, you know, in those situations, somebody is gonna stand up and, and say something like this, hey, who died and made you king? And sometimes people need to hear that. And some at Rome apparently needed to hear this. This is a little bit like Paul showing up and in much love but also saying, who are you to judge the servant of another? And then he, he, he gives the right perspective on all this. There's not one of us in this room who can, who can assume the title or position of Lord. There's only one person who owns and occupies that place, right? That's Jesus, our Lord and Savior. That means all of us, whether weak or strong, all of us are just household servants. Now remember, God the Father welcomed us into his house, and so if you want to keep thinking of, of that kind of communal living, Jesus is Lord of the house. And some of us feel it's our business to, to make everybody else's business our business. And Paul is saying, don't. Now look at this. Who is the Lord? Well, the one before whom 
all the rest of us stand or fall. And then, I love this phrase, this is so encouraging because frankly, we all look at the life choices and even particularly the way some others live out their faith and scratch our heads and sometimes like, I just don't think that's wise or best or I wish they wouldn't and, and we get a little nervous about this. But look at what Paul says next. And he, that is the master, will, or, or I'm sorry, the servant will be upheld for the Lord, the master, is able to make him stand. That's one of those moments where, you know, really be relieved of the responsibility that you have assumed for other servants of God. It's not yours. And furthermore, it's not just like get your hands off. It's like, hey, rest in the fact that the true Lord is in the process of causing that other servant to stand. And stand he will. Oh, what a great day that will be when we all stand in the presence of the risen Lord and we, we really do exhale from the depths of our soul, like that's that relief. Oh, we're here, we made it. Look at this, he made it? <laughs> yes, he did, because the Lord loved him and died for him and rose again that he might be justified by faith. Not because he ate meat or ate vegetables or drank the wine or didn't drink the wine or observed special days or didn't. He stands because of the Lord. Now, the common motive, and this is what you have to keep in mind. Look, again, look at the text. Verse five, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Isn't that interesting? Again, you kind of wish Paul would say, who's right, who's wrong, can we all just get on with it? He's like, no, you should be convinced in your own mind. Now here comes the, the common motive, though, verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Let's pause there for just a moment. Do you see it? This is why Paul doesn't bring the hammer blow on, on Rome, the church at Rome, like he does in Galatians and says, you know, if, if this is another gospel. If anybody preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. No, he very patiently deals with what's going on because he says, you know, at the heart level, that person you disagree with so vehemently is, is actually just making that choice to honor the Lord just like you. And again, we go, oh, wow, that's possible? Yes, yes. So you mean I, I shouldn't judge? No, you shouldn't. And I can't despise? No, you can't. I should welcome them? even though we feel very strongly in different ways about an issue? Yes. Why? Verse seven. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So he comes back again to this big point. Jesus is Lord. Then look at verse nine. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. I didn't die for you, you didn't die for me, but Jesus did. That's a game changer. Big point number three. And out of verse nine, we, we roll right into this last thought that God is judge. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, now he quotes Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. 
You know, what's interesting about that quotation from Isaiah 45, Paul quotes just verse 23, but if you look at verses 22 and 24, uh, kind of as bookends around that, both of those refer specifically to the exclusive sovereignty of God. Many of us have, have loved Isaiah 45, 22 for a long time where, where the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, s- s- extends this invitation and says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He's the only one. And then verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. Only in the Lord. Paul's reminding us that all will stand, every knee will bow. And then he goes on in verse 12, says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Think about that. We often get hung up in giving account to one another. Giving account, it's, it's just a simple way of, of describing if you gave some kind of a record or narrative, a description of past events. And sometimes we wanna hold one another accountable in ways that God never intended. Oh yeah, well tell me why. How come you think that? What proof do you have? And, and the Lord is bringing us all back into perspective to say, you know what? You're, you're not Lord of any other person's life or conscience, and you're not the ultimate judge of another person's life or ministry. But all of you will stand before me one day. Do you ever have one of those conversations with your dad or your mom? They walk in while you're quarreling with your siblings, and suddenly you realize the real authority just entered the room. It's time for all of us to be quiet. And you know, sometimes even in a church, that's what needs to happen. Sometimes in those debates and discussions between individuals, sometimes you just need to say, there's really nothing else to say. We'll let the Lord sort it out one day. And then think soberly and humbly about what that might mean. Beloved, every one of us needs to give serious thought to what we will say to the almighty God on that day of accounting when he says, let's talk about your life. Tell me about the choices you made. Will you be called into account for passing judgment on his servants as he is expressly forbidden here? Will you be called into account for despising the weak ones? Or will you be commended for welcoming others who though holding very different opinions and even practices you love because God the Father loved you. It can be hard to love weak ones, but can we go all the way back to Romans 5 and remember in that section where the Lord was reminding us of what we once were? One of those beautiful verses is when we were weak. That is, we, we didn't actually have the strength to make any morally admirable decision. What happened when we were weak? Christ died for us. We've all been weak in a way that would result in eternal condemnation. And yet God in love brought us out of that spiritual weakness and has begun to grow us. He wants every one of us to be strong in faith. He doesn't want you to remain where you are. And he doesn't want you to assume responsibility even for other people that you love. That it's just not yours. You're not Lord, you're not judge. We're brothers and sisters. In the same way that God the Father opened his heart and arms to you and said, come to me. Now we turn around and say to one another, come here. Are you living your life in the reality that Christ is the ultimate judge of all living people? Is he your Lord? I mean, have you, have you really submitted and surrendered your life fully to him? And then a second thought is, 
What will you say when you stand before God one day? I'll go back to what Matt shared. I love that quotation from Newton. You need not fear God because you are a sinner. You only need fear God if you are a sinner who's never acknowledged it before him and said, you're a great savior and I need you. You see, everyone who stands before God and gives an accounting to him one day who has acknowledged that and humbly admitted it, I am a sinner and I'm in need of a great savior, has found that rescue from him. And that's why there are many in this room today who actually aren't fearful of that day because they know their sins really are dealt with. And as Colossians tells us, that record of our offenses has been taken out of the way. It was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And he removed it. So there's an aspect of standing before the Lord on that day that will be absolutely glorious. So what will you say? Let's pray together. Father, would you give us grace to welcome one another as you have welcomed us? Would you give us the kind of loving wisdom that recognizes and makes room for even significant differences of opinion? And would you bring about such a tender love and unity in Christ, in the gospel, that as Paul will write in chapter 15, that together we, this local body of believers, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, give us that heart that sings and preaches and testifies with one voice. I thank you for this church family. Thank you for those who love you because you first loved them and pour out that love on others. Thank you for those who have borne patiently and who have modeled this kind of welcome. Would you just continue to grow us in this particular grace of Christ? Father, seal to our hearts the word of the gospel. Give us grace. We love you and thank you for all that you are for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.